Hello, and welcome to The Lost Ladies of Lit, a podcast dedicated to dusting off great books from some of history's forgotten female writers. I'm Amy Helms. And I'm Kim Askew. We are best friends and co-authors of the Twisted Lit series of young adult novels, and we're on a mission to shine a little light on some of the most entertaining authors you've never heard of. Starting with a great English writer by the name of Dickens. No, not that Dickens. Who knew there was more than one? Exactly. While the Dickens we're discussing today may not be so well known, we think she should definitely be on your reading list. So let's raid the stacks and get started. Okay, so of course everyone knows who Charles Dickens is, but did you know that his great-granddaughter Monica was also a very successful writer? I didn't. I had never heard of Monica Dickens before you lent me her novel, Mariana, a few months ago. And this is a woman who published more than 30 books, including best-selling novels, memoirs, nonfiction books, and children's series. In terms of sales and popularity, she was right up there holding her own with Daphne du Maurier in her day. So we wanted to kick off this podcast with Monica Dickens because it was while discussing Mariana that we started to formulate the idea of creating the this podcast. Over the years, Kim and I have traded and discussed so many books by women authors, books that have become our new favorite classics. And I think the common refrain that kept coming up between us was, why on earth is nobody talking about her? Why on earth had we never heard of her before now? People should be reading her. So that's basically what this podcast is about. We're going to go beyond the Bronte sisters and Jane Austen and all the authors you've already heard of and start discovering some of these other great women writers in history, the ones everyone seems to have forgotten. We want to go back in time and take another look at some of these women writers who paved the way and maybe even had success in their lifetime, but didn't really get their lasting due. So this podcast is about giving these literary ladies a much needed reintroduction. Which brings us back to Monica Dickens. All right, so let's just start with a little overview of who Monica Dickens was. She was the great-granddaughter of Charles Dickens. Her grandfather was Dickens' eighth child. And so she was born in 1915 and grew up comfortably upper class in the Notting Hill neighborhood of London. She never really expected that she was going to turn out to be a writer. It was actually her sister and her mother were more the writers in the family. I think it's probably good that she didn't start off with aspirations of being a writer because I think being Charles Dickens' great granddaughter is probably a pretty heavy legacy if that's your ambition in life. So when she was younger, she had some some troubles. She was a little lost, a little aimless. She flunked out of three different schools. And we'll talk about that later because it relates to Mariana, the novel we're going to be talking about. So when she was around 20 years old, she was feeling depressed and directionless. And she made the unorthodox decision based on her background that she was going to go into domestic service. This was a move that shocked a lot of her family members because it's like she was going to be the downstairs from Downton Abbey. She went to a cooking school, London's Petite Cordon Bleu, and she ended up working for two years as a housemaid and a cook general in more than 20 upper-class London households. 
she wound up taking those experiences and turning it into a memoir that she wrote in her early 20s called One Pair of Hands. I think she was sort of asked to write this book by somebody that connected her with somebody in publishing who I would imagine heard her last name, Dickens, and was like, you know, you should write all this down. And so that was her first foray into writing. And she wrote that memoir, which I have yet to read, but I'm really interested in checking it out now. But that book was a huge success for her. Everybody loved it. I think it was part social commentary kind of book, but really funny. Kim, have you read it? No, I haven't read it. But I can say that actually it was somebody who had a Dickens related magazine who read the first pages of this and encouraged her to move forward on it. Oh, interesting. That connection was there with with her great-grandfather. Okay. So she wrote this kind of nonfiction book. And then her second book was a novel, which is the book we're going to discuss today. It was also successful. During World War II, she went on to enter the nursing field and she published a book that was similar to One Pair of Hands called One Pair of Feet, which was all about her time as a nurse. She ended up marrying an American naval officer, and she moved to the States after the war in 1951. But even in America, she continued to write in the 70s and 80s. She wrote series for children. The most famous was probably the House at World's End series. And she also published her autobiography in 1978. And then she passed away in 1992. So before we get into some more interesting tidbits about Monica, is there anything else, Kim, that particularly struck you about her life when you were reading about her? I would just say that overall, for someone related to literary royalty, like you said, she seems pretty normal, like someone we'd be friends with. And the more that we're going to go over the novel and what happens in it, and that it's a bit of a memoir of her life, it just makes me feel even more and more like that. She seems very, very real. She's not larger than life. She seems like a normal person. A few tidbits that Kim and I really love about her that we read, as I mentioned before, she got expelled or tossed out of three different schools. Then those episodes are all represented to varying degrees in Mariana. First was St. Paul's Girls School. Kim, what did she do to get expelled from St. Paul's? She dumped her uniform over into the river. So yeah, no, nothing off the side terrible. of a bridge. Yeah, <laughs> she went to a Parisian finishing school. She didn't make the cut there either. Finally, she went to the Central School of Speech Training and Dramatic Arts, but she was kicked out for lack of talent, which I kind of applaud her for. <laughs> I think that was probably the best for her, that she didn't go on to become an actress, because I can't see that knowing what I know about her, really. She was shy and she was pretty bad at small talk. There's an anecdote where during her first debutante ball, she disappeared into a bathroom to read Vanity Fair. And I think that's kind of why we love her, that she hid out in the bathroom at a dance. (laughs) She did that. I can see both of us doing that for sure. (laughs) We We would do that now. It sort of speaks to what you were saying, Kim, about she's somebody that we would love, relatable. That would be us. I could definitely see us doing that. She had a dog named Ugly. I just think anybody that names their dog Ugly has to be a kind of cool chick. She has a sense of humor. 
Yeah, exactly. She also had a mild eating disorder in her early 20s, and she was almost hospitalized for it. And that sort of comes to play a little bit in Mary Shannon, the heroine of Marianna as well. We saw some of that struggle which she had with her weight. But yes, in many ways, Monica really is like the heroine of Marianna. She's inwardly cynical. She's self-effacing, she's daring and rebellious, but also insecure and awkward at times. There was a lot in her that you can love. Just to give you a little background about the time that Mariana was written, it was published in 1940 when she was in her early 20s. Was republished by Persephone Books in 1999, so you can definitely get your hands on a copy. Shout out to uh, Persephone Ma- Books. Yeah, it's basically a coming of age novel. She's, she wrote this book at the start of World War II, but the story itself goes back in time to the protagonist's youth in the 1930s. And so most of the novel takes place between the First and the Second World War in sort of those halcyon happy days of England. So the novel was a success at the time, but imagine having your publishing career kick off right at the beginning of World War II. I mean, it's kind of <laughs> if you had a book out right now during... COVID, we're recording this right in the middle of a global pandemic. Right. Yeah, would have been challenging to maybe get a bit of traction, but she did. I mean, the book was a success. So before we actually get into talking about this book more, we should mention that Kim and I both have cocktails at the ready that we have made prior to the podcast. How is yours, Kim? It's delicious. It tastes a little bit like sangria. Yes. It's called the Dubonnet Cassis. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it exactly correctly, but it's from the book, inspired mm-hmm. by a drink that Mary orders when she's trying to be sophisticated. Yeah, so she's in Paris, um, and she's attending dress school at the time, dressmaking school. What would you call that? Dressmaking school. That's not that right. That right. Fashion school, whatever it was. And she's sort of trying to be sophisticated in Paris, but she's brand new English girl. And it's really when she goes to the bar, it's the only drink she knows to order. So that's what she orders. So our Dubonnet Cassis is Dubonnet, which is like a sweet wine based aperitif. And then cassis is blackberry liqueur with a little splash of soda and a twist of lime. And yes, Kim, it tastes pretty much exactly like sangria. <laughs> I was nervous because I don't really like super sweet syrupy drinks, but I liked it. It's palatable. I think I liked it because it was in the book. <laughs> but also, did you know that a Dubonnet and gin is the favorite cocktail of the Queen of England? Well, that makes me like this even more. <laughs> makes me feel sophisticated, too. So we will put the ingredients for Dubonnet Cassis in our show notes. But now that we have our cocktails handy, let's dive into Mariana. All right, so let's get to the book. The structure is basically a fairly drama-free coming-of-age story. It's kind of a light romance almost. In the preface, the book is referred to as a hot water bottle genre. I looked it up and I think actually the writer of the preface might have sort of made up that phrase herself, but I take it to mean a cozy and comfortable story. Can I just interrupt for a second and say that I actually read this book in a hammock outside and it's lovely for that as well. Yes, I think it could be a a beach read sort of thing. I think a page turner in that way. Because it's sandwiched between this high drama, this high tension plot, she finds out in the very beginning that her significant other's ship has been sunk by a mine the beginning of World War II, and that most of the men on board have been killed. 
and she's out in the country, not near a telephone. She has to wait all night before she can find out if he's alive or dead. Her mind is just racing at that time because there's nothing she can do. And it's interesting because when I was reading the beginning, that first preface, you care, like you're concerned for her, but then you're ready to sort of dive into the meat of the story. And then when we wind up circling back to this little dramatic plot at the tail end of the book, because we have gotten to know her and her life, the main character's name is Mary Shannon, because we've gotten to know Mary, I was just on the edge of my freaking seat. Like I was like white knuckling my way, trying to read as fast as I could. And we're not going to give any spoilers about what happened to the significant other. But I just thought it was really effective to like, like you said, sandwich the coming of age story in between these two segments. Absolutely. By the end, you're so emotionally committed. You know who the love interest is at that point. You very much care whether or not he has survived. And, you know, we aren't going to tell you, but I will definitely tell you it is emotional to read the end by the time you get there. So I think it's brilliant that she uses this tactic to, to take this hot water bottle genre and make it something really special. And also, like any young girl growing up, she has several love interests, several crushes, paramours throughout this story. And so each time you would get to a new one, there was three main gents, wouldn't you say? Uh, But each time you get to one, you kind of reflect back on that very beginning where the Navy officer is potentially down. And you think, is this the guy? Like, is this going to be the guy she ends up with? Oh my gosh. So that was kind of fun. And then you finally realize which, which is her, you know, the love of her life. And then you are just fighting to make sure everything's going to be okay. Yeah. No wonder that people love this book at the time. I mean, and I'm sure a lot of people were going through similar things, you know, at the beginning of World War II, wondering where their significant other was and if they'd be okay. So you could imagine they could really relate to this. Absolutely. And when I first started reading the book, I assumed that the heroine's name would be Mariana, right? It's Mm -hmm. not. She's never called Mariana. She's Mary. The book's title is actually tied to a poem by Tennyson of the same name, which is pretty much a dirgeful death wish of a poem. It's about a young woman who is pining for the man she lost. So there's definitely a connection between Tennyson's poem and this overarching saga of is her sweetheart going to come home, which I loved. And it's a poem that when Mary goes to acting school in the middle of the book, it's the monologue that she winds up having to read. And she does a horrible job of it, basically, because she's a terrible actress. But yeah, I thought that was an interesting way to spin a prior work of literature. Yeah, the theme of powerlessness and sort of events that you can't control and Basically, it feels like she's taking Mariana and making it an answer to how you can handle those things that are out of your control and still sort of try to move forward in your life in spite of them. Right. And I think the arc of this novel, once you get into Mary's story of her childhood and her growing up, I mean, it's really the journey in which she becomes her own person, becomes a strong woman. You know, the book may be sectioned out in a way that's kind of based on the various men who come and go in her life. But when all is said and done, it's really a book about her finding herself. And so at the end, 
even though there's no major plot per se, it's sort of just like a slice of her life and we are getting a window into one girl's existence. You know, there's not a lot that happens that's out of the ordinary. So you have to kind of like that sort of book. You know I what I mean? that's true because, you know, even though the, it is those, the men who come and go in her life, I don't think too much importance is placed on the men in a good way. I think they're part of how she's figuring out who she is, but it really does remain her thoughts and the things that she's trying to overcome. It really is about her. I don't think it gets too caught up in, in these other characters, which I think is a good thing. So what do we love about Mary? We've talked about what we liked about Monica Dickens, but now let's talk about her heroine here. Okay, yeah. So what I love about Mary is that she isn't larger than life and she isn't an anti-hero either. She's kind of an every girl and every woman throughout the novel. Her teachers report that she's seventh in her class. That sounds great until you learn that there are 10 other girls in the class. <laughs> so, right. And they say she has a tendency in her to resent authority to the point of resistance. I mean, I can identify with that. I didn't do much of the resisting part, but I definitely thought about it and wanted to. The teacher goes on to write in this report card home to Mary's mom that although she is popular with her fellow pupils, I'm afraid she is a bad mixer, being at the same time intolerant and unconfident of others and disinclined to enter into the life of the community. You know, it says her heart's in the right place, but and she will eventually mature into a fine woman. But it's not the most enthusiastic review, right? No. No. She's not academically special at all, and she doesn't see herself as special at all. I mean, she has a lot of mortifying moments, and she just thinks she's very average, which is funny because the more you read and as you go along in this book, there's nothing average. She's like a remarkable young lady. Absolutely. And she doesn't know that about herself at all. Um, But I think going back to her relatability, that's sort of endearing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So after this very beginning where she's hears on the radio, the ship has gone down, the next chapter jumps back into, I mean, I guess, would you say she's about 11 or 12 years old? In that? Yeah, I don't think it explicitly says, but I, I think about that age. Yeah. Yeah. And we go back to sort of her family's summer compound. I liken it to like the Kennedy compound in Massachusetts. Exactly. Um, They had this cool estate that belonged to her grandparents, and the whole family gathers there in the summer. This place is called Charbury in the novel, but in real life, Monica Dickens has a similar summer house that she would go to on her mother's side of the family that was called Chillworthy. Everything is, sounds very similar and autobiographical. Yeah, very much drawn from that experience and her memory of that and how much she loved that that Charbury. And the important thing that comes out of these summers at Charbury is her cousin, Dennis. (laughs) What did you make of Dennis? Oh, you know, I found him a a bit annoying from the very beginning. (laughs) (laughs) It says clearly that everyone worshipped him. All of his cousins worshipped him. He could basically do no wrong. He was great and perfect and all-powerful, but the grown-ups were kind of like, okay, he's going to get his when he goes to the next level of school, and and they're going to basically beat it out of it, was what it sounded like. Right. Uh, but, but Mary is absolutely, you know. Besobbed. Yeah. Totally crushing on her cousin. When I first was reading this, I was taken aback 
And I didn't know what to think in the context of this time period. Is that normal? Because Mary was acting like it was completely normal, right? I know you did some research into whether it was or wasn't. I will say maybe I've read too many historical novels because I felt like it wasn't that shocking to me. <laughs> right. I, th- I felt the same way. I thought like, yeah. how am I supposed to think about this? Because this could be perfectly normal. And mm-hmm. she's acting like, oh yeah, I hope... Dennis and I are going to be the hot ticket here and the family's going to be so happy for us. British royalty have been marrying their cousins for centuries, even through Queen Victoria's era. I knew Eleanor Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt are cousins. So I was like, okay, maybe in that time period, it, it was more accepted. So I looked it up and from what I could find out after World War I in England, it definitely started to be frowned upon. Mm. Up until that point, it wasn't that big of a deal. Everybody kind of, it was kind of commonplace if you wound up marrying your cousin. Not commonplace, but it wasn't taboo necessarily. But after World War I, it started to be like, eh, maybe not. I think I read that around that time period, one in 6,000 couples would have been cousins who were oh, married wow. in that okay. day. So while I was reading the book, there was some high drama between Mary and Dennis. I mean, they made out after yeah, the fox did. hunt. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, I've been to a fox hunt. What? Did you know that? No. I know. How did I not know this? Oh, my God. That's, that's a story for another time. Oh, God. Can't but wait. yeah, so Dennis and Mary, cousins from Charbury, they kissed at one point, And he was definitely leading her on. And so she sort of put all the cards out on the table and was like, what's going on between us? And he laughed at off and he's like oh silly you know like we could never have a romance because that would be incest and he says the word that was a complicated little thing to sort out and a little bit shocking it made me really like him even less at that point because I felt like he really was taking advantage of her youth and the fact that she really looked up to him yeah absolutely After that whole episode, she gets over Dennis pretty quickly and is like, okay, he's a player. So like Monica Dickens, Mary is kind of aimless after finishing school as a sort of second-rate student. She decides that she is going to follow in her uncle Jeffrey's footsteps. He's an actor. And she's going to go to acting school and see maybe she can be a movie star. This was one of my favorite parts of the book because her description of the acting school is so hilarious. Yep. I have a little bit that I will read from this part just because when they get to miming class, I mean, you can already imagine. Individual miming is the name of the class. This was... This was the worst part of all. The students stood in a whispering line against the wall, and each in turn had to step into the middle of the room and render in dumb show whatever Miss Dallas's whimsical fancy conceived. One could not laugh. It was all so sad and embarrassing and too painfully suggestive of what one probably looked like oneself. Remember, like, the green tunics and tights was the outfit they needed to wear? And I oh, mean, it just... It hilarious. She paints the picture of yeah. the acting school so well. Yeah, that and when she just has enough of it. She's in the middle of this live performance, and she goes into this, like, blackout rage, and I quote, 
she began to burlesque. <laughs> and that, by the way, is how she gets kicked out of acting school. And it's kind of shocking because what we've known of her up to this time is that she's pretty reserved and just a wallflower. So imagining her up on stage in front of all the parents and relatives of all the students, and she makes a fabulous racy display of herself to the point where she gets kicked out and then she just runs off stage <laughs> and leaves the school it was great it was great yeah uh she does not know what to do with her life but her mother convinces her to go to paris to study dressmaking so that's what she does and there she meets bachelor number two pierre yes pierre okay i have to admit i got kind of swept up in pierre at the beginning i thought he was going to be the one yeah. Um, first. When you first met him, I was like, he's going to be the one somehow. He's great. He's great yeah. at first and very sophisticated. He's got money. Yeah. It seems like he's the answer to all Mary's problems Absolutely. because back in England, her mom is having financial issues. If she marries this guy, which is what he wants, all that will be solved. And Mary's very uncertain about her future. She's not really into what she's doing, what she's studying. She hasn't really found anything yet. So I think he kind of fills a hole there. Right. I found it an interesting scene when she took him back to England at one point to meet the whole family that usually was at Charbury. And she saw him juxtaposed with all her English relatives and realized this is not the guy. By that point, the worm has turned a little bit with him and we are starting to see that he's a jerk. But he reminded me in that moment of Cecil Weiss from Room with a View. Just 100%. like a fop, totally yep. foppish. Yep. And thank God she kicks him to the curb. And, and there's a great <laughs> quote where she talks about the difference between Paris and England, which is also the difference between Pierre and somebody that might be her true love. It says, if Paris had a feeling of its own in the air, so had England, but you only noticed it when you had been away. It was a feeling of damp, fresh security. Everything looked so right and so comfortably unexotic, like a cabbage. (laughs) It seemed that even the breezes blew there because they knew that England was the only possible country in which to blow. Mary had never been away for so long before, and she stepped down the gangway with the joyful feeling that she was returning to where she belonged. The interesting note about that section, because I loved that whole paragraph as well, and I thought like, oh God, her love for her country and just England's dampness, you know, she <laughs> she just, she loves it there and doesn't want to leave for Paris uh, or doesn't want to live permanently in Paris. But then I think it's interesting that Monica Dickens ended up leaving England in, yeah. in the 50s and going to America. And so right. she obviously did leave if she felt that way, kind of interesting. Yeah, things probably changed maybe with World War II and everything. Maybe she just yeah. couldn't return to the way it was. Okay, so she dumps Pierre, thank God, and she ends up back in England. The woman that wrote the preface for the Persephone version of this novel that was republished in 1999, mm-hmm. Harriet Lane, she said the plot would probably ring some bells with a certain Bridget Jones. Yes. Let's discuss how she meets. Sam, who is the guy that ends up becoming her husband. Oh, I don't yeah. think I don't think we're spoiling it to talk about the men in this way that yeah. she winds up with this guy. Because no. that's we're not gonna spoil the ending, but nope. Sam is the guy that she ends up marrying. And their meet cute, quote unquote, is one of the best that I've read. It's amazing. And so so I think 
real compared to your typical meet cute that happens. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, we won't even spoil this part other than to say that she gets sick to her stomach. It is so very Bridget Jones. It's very, it's just very Bridget Jones and it involves vomiting and it's really funny, but also your heart just goes out to her because it's very mortifying um, and it all works out in the end. Very sweet too. (laughs) So sweet. And there's like a poignant passage in the last chapter where, you know, it's nighttime and she knows that in the morning she's going to find out whether her husband, he's her husband, is, is alive or dead. And she's kind of thinking back on Tennyson's poem and Mariana and because Mariana in the poem is just basically like, I want to die. I can't live without this guy. I can't go on. And Mary has a different perspective. And I'll just read that line. She says, but Mariana was wrong. You couldn't die. You had to go on. When you were born, you were given a trust of individuality that you were bound to preserve. It was precious. The things that happened in your life however closely connected with other people, developed and strengthened that individuality. You became a person. Nothing that ever happens in life can take away the fact that I am me. And so I love that because even though we didn't know what was going to become of her husband, we got the sense that she was going to be okay. She was a strong woman by that point, and she was going to persevere. I thought that was really beautiful. I agree. It gives me the chills hearing that again. I remember reading it in the moment and having that feeling. And um, I also think that gives a, a real glimpse into some of the passages that you'll read in this book. You know, it's, it is a coming of age story, but there are so many really great quotes from the book that I think are really inspiring. So as we might have mentioned earlier, it's not like this book has a really strong plot line or action that's happening. It's kind of a slice of this girl's life that you're following along. It's like following along with a friend's life that you're catching up with sort of thing. There's been no film adaptations of this novel, and I wonder if it could even work. I think it could be a miniseries. Oh, yeah. I think it'd be like a masterpiece miniseries or some sort of miniseries. I do think that you're right, though. For a film, it might not be quite right. You know, like a two-hour typical. Right. Definitely Hollywood would have to zhuzh it up a little bit in terms of the things that happened in it. The book itself is amazing, but to make it uh, something that you would watch in one city, you'd need more that was happening. Yep. So let's say this is a BBC miniseries Mm -hmm. suddenly. Who would we cast? as some of these characters we've talked about. Okay, so I don't know. I wonder if we're going to have the same people. We have not talked about this before. So I don't know that many actors in their 20s by name, Um, but I was thinking Saoirse Ronan for Mary and maybe Callum Turner for Dennis. He was Frank Churchill in the recent Emma that just came this year. And then I thought, or maybe Timothée Chalamet, but I feel uh-huh. like I should save him because I think I'm going to want to cast him in the future. Okay. And for Sam, maybe Tom Holland. I think he was Superman or Spider-Man. Oh, yes. But yeah. Yeah. I think he, I could see him as Sam because Sam seems like a kind of sweet, personable. Oh, for nice sure. Guy. For sure. What about you? What do you think? I'm, I'm dying to hear. Uh, so for Mary, I'm saying Maisie Williams Remind because – Maisie Williams is from Game of Thrones. She is the youngest Oh my gosh, yes. Yes, yes. I love it. Okay, I want to change to that one. I love it. 
a physical description of Mary from the book. It says Mm -hmm. she was a shrimp of a child with no natural color so that people said triumphantly she looked delicate. When she grinned, she looked like a gnome with her narrow chin and little pointed ears. I mean, that seems like Maisie Williams to me. Maisie could play both the younger and the grown-up. She totally could. She totally could straddle both. Absolutely. (laughs) For Dennis, I'm going to go with Harry Styles. Oh. Because he's kind of like a charmer. He's kind of like a charmer bad boy. He's good looking. He's got, and she always talked about that flop of hair that came down over Dennis's forehead. And Harry Styles has that. Um, Pierre, I would cast Louis Garel, who was Joe's German husband in Little Women. He's much older though. Okay. So yeah, he might not be young enough. For Sam, I said Harry Hayden Patton, who in Downton Abbey, he was the guy that married Lady Edith at the end. Oh, yes. Okay. They kind of describe Sam in the book as not necessarily drop-dead gorgeous, but somebody that looks like they'd be a good husband, a nice husband. That's how she describes him. You know what? I'm seeing a huge problem here. We are going to want to adapt and write screenplays for all of our episodes of our podcast. (laughs) We're doing some of the the work for ourselves right now, basically. Exactly. We're getting some of this out of the way. Absolutely. (laughs) So what did we discover today from reading Monica Dickens' Mariana? We discovered that crushing on your cousin is a really bad idea. Yes, absolutely, especially your first cousin. Uh, We also discovered that throwing up can be wildly romantic. Who knew? (laughs) Who knew? We've confirmed that acting classes are pretty strange in any era. And we've discovered that Charles isn't the only Dickens worth reading. So moving on, what are you currently reading this week, Kim? Oh my gosh, I've been wanting to tell you about this, but I saved it. I am reading Ellen Wood's East Lynn. Um, It's a novel about an aristocratic woman who abandons her husband and children for a wicked seducer. And apparently it was devoured by everyone from the Prince of Wales to Joseph Conrad. So, I mean, I'm excited. That that (laughs) sounds amazing. And guess what? Well, I've never heard of it. Sounds like another future episode, don't you That's think? That's what I was thinking. Yep. <laughs> when this pandemic shutdown started and the libraries were closed, I realized I needed to have the fattest possible book to get me through it if I wasn't going to be able to check books out of the library. So right now I am a third of the way through Samuel Richardson's Clarissa, The History of a Young Lady. It was published in 1748. It's over 1,500 pages long in very, very small print. And it's very dramatic. It's about a teenage girl that has two op- well, three options. She can either marry this kind of dorky guy that her family is pressuring her to marry, who is kind of a cross between... Pride and Prejudice, Mr. Collins, and like Uriah Heep. (laughs) He's just an awful human being. Or she can run away with the sort of town cad womanizer guy that everybody knows has a bad reputation, but he is offering to take her away in the dark of night to get her away from this impending marriage. Or her third option is to kill herself. So, and she's a teenager, but she's very shrewd and clever, but there's lots of teenage angst. It's a good pandemic read. (laughs) So that's all for today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For a full transcript of this episode, check out our show notes and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. If you have any ideas for other long forgotten women authors you'd love to see featured on our show, let us know. Help us turn I've Never Heard of Her into one of your new favorite authors. 
Our theme song was written and performed by Jenny Malone. Special thanks as well to Harriet Grant for our logo design. See you next time. Thank you.